Rapid cycling bipolar disorder appears to be much more common than we previously thought. How do you diagnose it? Is the treatment the same as for classical bipolar illness? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Christina Demopoulos, who recently relocated to the West Coast from the Bipolar Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital. She now is at the Center for Anxiety and Depression in Mercer Island, Washington. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Demopoulos, your specialty is rapid cycling bipolar disorder. How does this differ from classical manic depressive illness? Well, rapid cycling bipolar disorder is really considered a course specifier for bipolar disorder, meaning that people can have standard bipolar 1 or 2 disorder, but they can cycle in and out of their course uh, within the life cycle. And it really is defined as four or more mood episodes in a year. So these are people that have more frequent episodes and typically a more pernicious course. One of the common things that I hear is that people that change their moods every day or every other day, that that must be rapid cycling bipolar. Can you help us with that? That is a common confusion, and people use the term rapid cycling rather loosely. If you really consider it from kind of a strict research perspective or a DSM-IV, that's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that we use, uh, it really is considered... Uh, four or more discrete episodes where a minimum episode criteria would really be hypomania, so meeting four days of mood elevation. That would be your kind of shortest episode period. However, when you really look at it in general phenomenologically, people do talk about, and researchers certainly do, about ultradian cycling. So people who do have multiple, even discrete periodic episodes within a day. So being depressed in the morning or and then switching to elevation at nighttime or vice versa. More typically, it would be depression in, in, in the morning time and then elevation as, as the evening proceeds. But, again, this is very difficult to define, and, and really the DSM-IV is kind of well circumscribed these episodes so that they can be tracked and we can really look at cycle frequency. But um, some believe that really this is a spectrum, like bipolar disorder in general, that patients can go from kind of discrete episodes, multiple, to various episodes within a day, uh, to actually achieving mixed states where people have highs and lows in the same period. And management really isn't that different between rapid cycling, ultradian cycling, or mixed states. So how common are these problems? Oh, rapid cycling, uh, as it's defined in dsm are really prevalence rates are varied. Uh, we used to think that maybe about 15% to 20%, but more recent studies really look at it at a prevalence rate as high as 38%, 40 even in some uh, cases. And that may be in part due to the effect of antidepressants on bipolar course. We can talk about that. So 40% of bipolar patients are rapid cycling? Well, they will cycle at some point in the course of their illness. So not 40% of the population? No, 40% of bipolar patients will cycle at some point in the course of their illness. And that, that's a high estimate. I mean, we're looking at ranges of 10 to 38, 40% in studies. But certainly not uncommon. No, it is not uncommon. Um, do you find that people miss it? And if they do, what's the risk of missing it? Well, I mean, the hardest thing in bipolar disorder in general, and this isn't exclusive to rapid cycling, is that patients present to clinicians depressed. You don't see patients coming and saying, 
I am so happy. I'm so happy to be here, and I'm really euphoric. They come in when they're in the depressed phase wanting help. And so it's kind of the sense of don't ask, don't tell. So if a clinician does not really ask about the high end, they may miss the diagnosis and go ahead and treat a bipolar patient with standard antidepressants without mood stabilization. And that can have a significant impact on course. So what is the impact? If we do miss it and patient comes in depressed, you give them an antidepressant, you missed the bipolar diagnosis or the rapid cycling diagnosis, what, what can happen? Well, there are a number of studies that suggest that uh, antidepressant use, particularly without stabilization, so monotherapy antidepressant use, can induce cycle acceleration. So if a patient presented, let's say, to Dr. X and this patient had a remote manic or hypomanic episode, and then they come in complaining of dysphoria of depression, and they're treated with a standard antidepressant, and in particular probably greater offenders would be tricyclic antidepressants or stimulants. Uh, and this applies also for adolescents that present, let's say, with ADHD, and really they have a bipolar vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Then those agents can increase the amplitude and frequency of episodes, meaning bipolar episodes, highs and lows. And this can cause cycling course and a more pernicious course. So this will result in a real treatment challenge for, for physicians to try to stabilize that mood liability. We've seen that quite a bit in our adolescents that have been given um, Stratera or atomoxetine that were bipolar and people missed it and then they had um, incredibly destabilized moods. That's right, because atomoxetine really is, is kind of a supercharged tricyclic, isn't it? It has kind of a dual mechanism of action in terms of norepinephrine. And so we have to be really careful um, in making the correct diagnosis. And it's a very difficult one. It's a great treatment challenge for pediatricians and for child psychiatrists are to, you know, identify the predictors of who would go on and become mood elevated or even be able to identify the more subtler forms of bipolar disorder. So back to adults, what tips can you give to non-psychiatrists on how to pick up this problem in their patients? The first thing that is so critical, and I think this cuts across the board for, for many disorders, is just a very good evaluation. Uh, and it's hard in the, in the primary care world. There's limited time. There is a multiple review of systems that, that the primary care community faces. So the first thing really would be if there is any suspicion at all and a person is coming in for mood complaints is to consider giving them a screening instrument from the get-go in, in the waiting room. Have them fill out, um, for example, the mood disorders questionnaire, which is very easy to download from the Internet, and this questionnaire was implemented by um, Dr. Hirschfeld and a number of colleagues, and is a validated measure, and it's a quick screening tool that really covers what we call the A and B criteria. If you look at your DSM-IV, your Diagnostic Statistical Manual, you'll see the A and B criteria for, for bipolar disorder, and it covers those criteria in a really straightforward yes-no format, 13 questions. And then if they're co-occurring endorsement of those symptoms, those 13 symptoms, and those co-occurring symptoms cause significant functional impairment, it really increases your, your sensitivity that you, you may have a bipolar mood disorder on your hands, particularly if people endorse seven or more items on that scale. So that's an easy, quick, in the waiting room, 
um, means of having a starting point to discuss patient's mood and the question of bipolar disorder. The second part is really going through a very iterative, systematic evaluation, not missing the high end, and having another person in the room with a patient, a person, a family member, or someone in that circle of confidentiality who can be another set of eyes. Because, again, patients come in complaining of depression, but a family member or a spouse or relative may be able to say, well, you've also had periods of elevation or periods of uh, being activated, irritable, not sleeping. One of the most important, I feel, one of the most important questions to ask uh, is whether patients have a decreased need for sleep. It's different than insomnia. Um, these people sleep less and wake up with energy. That is a clear hallmark. And quite often, sleep disturbance is the first hallmark of uh, roughening into elevation. Dr. Demopoulos, uh, play devil's advocate here a minute with you. The mood disorder questionnaire, uh, we used to use it in our practice, and I actually abandoned it because I found it so vague that my ADD patients, you know, looked bipolar on it. My anxious patients looked polar, bipolar. My obsessive-compulsive disorder patients looked bipolar. <laughs> Everybody looked bipolar. bipolar. <laughs> so I didn't find it terribly helpful, and, and I worry that especially non-psychiatrists might take it at face value, see all those yeses lined up, and think, oh, my gosh, you know, she's bipolar. Right. Well, well, look, again, as I mentioned, that's a really important point, Leslie, is, you know, do we overdiagnose the, the bipolar spectrum? Okay, so the MDQ clearly can be a first-pass screening device in the waiting room, but it really, it, it's, a, it's a launching point for asking much more pointed questions to really tease out a bipolar diagnosis. Tina, I'm curious, you mentioned a couple of things I think we could get further clarified. One of them was if a risk factor would be a patient who, who has had what you called a quick treatment response to antidepressants. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. What's quick mean? Well, I'll give you an example. I had a patient who came to me with a great deal of anxiety and depression, and there was no kind of clear-cut mania in her history, uh, even not a clear-cut question of whether she even met criteria for hypomania for four days of mood elevation. But when we went back through her history, she had a fast treatment response to sertraline, to Zoloft, uh, in less than a week. I mean, standard treatment responses usually occur at about a two-week. You'll, you'll see a partial response and usually a month a full response, and for late responders, maybe out to eight weeks. But this person within a week had a robust response. That makes me nervous. Mm. <laughs> I see that robust response at a, at a modest dose, at a modest to low dose of sertraline. So uh, that prompted me to ask more questions about family history, not only first degree, but second degree relatives, whether there was any question of bipolar diagnosis or treatment in relatives, uh, whether uh, this patient overshot, not just got better or, or less depressed within a week, but had symptoms consistent with hypomania, uh, not just euphoria, but irritability, agitation, mood liability, a decreased need for sleep, uh, grandiosity, risk-taking, all those things that are associated with elevation. Uh, so that, that would be an example mm -hmm. where you would want to be really careful, or if people have had multiple antidepressant treatment responses and then 
uh, loss of responses or partial or no response to multiple antidepressants. And multiple, again, give us a ballpark. What does that mean? Uh, three, four antidepressants. Also, people have very quick depressive episodes. So unlike unipolar you know, depression, bipolar patients, now some may have very long chronic depressive courses, but more typically this is kind of an episodic waxing and waning dual pole illness. So people may have shorter episodes, uh, briefer episodes, uh, and that can also cue you. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Christina Demopoulos. We've been discussing how to diagnose rapid cycling bipolar disorder. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.